Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you guys. My name is Robert. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry to State, and here with me, as always, my very good friend and recently fully vaccinated colleague, uh, Will Stockdale. Will, you got the second shot today. How are you feeling? Mark it down. May 11th, <laughs> about 11.15. I was, I was injected with dose two of Moderna. Uh, it was so strange. I was sitting there. I was like, should be, I, I be expecting side effects? She said, you're young and healthy. So yes. And I was <laughs> like, what? And she said, yeah, typically with older people, they're fine. Younger. So this virus is insane. And it, it's the exact opposite of what you would think. And so, uh, yeah, I got it about four hours ago, but you know what, Robert, we're here. We're here now to fight through this because we've got things to talk about. We've got stuff to do and no time to back down. So get the behind me COVID. Man, I'm ready. No kidding. I'm ready to run through a wall. Oh Uh, man. If you think that's good, wait till you hear what we got lined up for today, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Will's right. We do have a very uh, fun conversation planned uh, today. I think one thing uh, that we've sort of noticed over the course of um, the last year or so, really since we started this podcast, um, is all the conversation about, you know, what's going on with the church? What is the future of the church, particularly in America? Um, the decline of uh, religiosity, especially amongst uh, emerging generations. Uh, I think it was just a few weeks ago, you know, that uh, big number that came out about, what was it, like only 42% um, or, or 42% of people uh uh, classify as no religion or something like that. Um, is that, was that, was 40, it? I think it was 47 or 48% of people are still church. I think the number was for the first time in American history, there was like the majority of people uh, were not in church. And then there's been a bunch of debate about what that exactly means is uh, how do people answer those questions? Do they mean membership? Do they mean regular attendees? What did they mean in the past? Right. But, but yeah, that, that it, it, it was a, uh, Everybody, um, I think, noticed it and uh, put their attention and their eyes on it to see uh, what exactly this could spell. Yeah. And I think part of that conversation is, well, how do we evangelize the next generation? How do we think about evangelizing uh, millennials who I think we, we still t- kind of think of millennials as sort of the youngest generation. But I mean, that, that's us. We're like in, our, in the middle of our careers where a lot of us are married, have kids. I mean, this is a, a thing. And so it's really Gen Z that's now emerging um, uh, in sort of the, that sort of critical space in our consciousness. And so we're, we're now starting to ask questions, well, how do we evangelize to this next generation? And so, you know, I think you can do sort of a cursory look on the internet. You can find like 20, 25 different articles from different sources within the church being like, hey, this is how you're going to evangelize Gen Z. Um, and I think that there's a lot of debate w- about that question, because I think that there's a lot of differences of opinion and different readings on this generation and how um, evangeliz- evangelizing that generation might go about. I mean, I, I kind of want to break this conversation down into to three main questions. Um, uh, those being, what do people get right about evangelizing millennials and Gen Z? What do people get wrong? And then finally, uh, I want us to talk a little bit about how the institutional church should think about attracting younger generations to their congregations. Um, but let's start with that first one, Will. What are some of the things that people get right 
when it comes to evangelizing the next generation? Well, I think one thing might be a word on generations as we get started, uh, because we are making distinctions about approaches to millennials or Gen Z or Gen X or boomers or great generation. Uh, I would say that 150 to 200 years ago, this talk about differences in generations was not nearly as pronounced as it is now. And there's a sociological phenomenon there and, and a more uh, technological phenomenon as well. I think two things that have played in uh, as well as the sociological uh, philosophical, I think have played together in a way that um, there is this kind of cult of youth that we have, uh, particularly in the West. This is not nearly as Eastern as it is Western. You can trace that well, we may not, we don't have time to do this, but we can trace it to Jean-Jacques Rousseau in a lot of ways and uh, his, uh, the noble savage theory and man being uncorrupted. So there's this idea that children are better. And, and we see it nowadays where we look to children to tell older people what to do. Uh, we look to children as these purer uh, vessels. And we look at the new generation as this one that's going to be to fix what has come before it. And then there's a technological side where uh, Carl Truman makes this point in his book, The Creedal Imperative, that 200 years ago, you had a grandmother who was sitting at a loom uh, with wool and the grandchild had to sit down and say, grandma, how do you do that? Like, how do you make that? Well, I, they are reliant upon you to, uh, to show them how to take a craft. Now, um, with writing code or learning how to use more intuitive technology, there's this less reliant upon reliance upon the older generation. And so this leads to a big break. This is a long explanation, but I think it is important, at least for understanding why we talk about generations so much. Um, and I think with that will be partly our discussion is as much as people want to make a distinction between generations, we have to understand a continuity and an importance that, that older generations play for younger generations uh, and the leadership that exists there and this thread that continues to go on. Yeah. Like what's often I, or I should say this, what I often hear is um, there's a give and take between older and younger generations that older generations pass down the wisdom and traditions to the younger generations. And then the younger generations in some sense, um, speak into the current moment and sort of push it towards, you know, reform or, or different ways. But in, in our current moment, and I think what you're getting at is that there's just such an emphasis on the prophetic power of younger generations to speak into older generations. And we don't really have as much of the passing down, the sort of uh, uh, handing over of the torch, uh, if you will. And I think that's true amongst all spheres. I mean, this is definitely true in like politics um, it's true in technology, uh, but I think it, in some ways, it's also true in the church. Um, and I can kind of see that in different ways, um, worship models, liturgical models, things like that. You really do see sort of an emphasis on um, the, the younger generation coming into the church to really speak prophetically and reform it. Um, but I, I think you're right with everything that you're saying about differentiating between generations. And it's probably not a coincidence either then that you know, the generation gaps, you know, the, the years uh, of generations seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, like the, the, the window between uh, millennials and Gen Z seems to be pretty small as opposed to the window between baby boomers and Gen X. Um, and I've even heard, I can't remember where I read it, but some sociologist basically was thinking that because of uh, where we are with technology uh, and in world history, 
I think it was, he was basically saying that Gen Z is the last generation that after that, everything will be so uh, uh, congruous to each other almost that it'll be really hard to distinguish between what makes a Gen Z and a, and the generation after that, because the technologies are just going to be so advanced between both that it'll be hard to really differentiate between the two. What do you think of that thesis? I, I don't know enough about, um, uh, I, I don't know enough about uh, the demographics to maybe comment. Um, I mean, it's an interesting thesis. I don't know if it, I, I guess it makes me wonder, what do we mean by generation? What do we mean constitute? Is it, is it simply technology? Um, you mentioned and wanted to ask, what are we getting right about evangelizing millennials and Gen Z? And I, I, what, are you, what are you thinking here? What's on your mind? Well, I mean, there's, there's common cliches about Gen Z. Um, and in some ways, they're a cliche because they represent some amount of truth, right? So like, I think one thing that gets thrown around a lot is authenticity. Um, you hear that word used a lot um, with Gen Z. Uh, and I just think it's, I think that word is interesting because, um, especially when it's used by the church, because I, I'm not sure that the church understands what it means for it to be authentic, mm. uh, if that makes sense. Um, so to be authentic, uh, as the body of Christ, uh, is in many ways to trace itself back to the early church and to be, uh, fully in tune with sort of its historical development. Um, but what's interesting is you often hear churches that are trying to reach newer generations as sort of, they speak in sort of adapting or progressive language um, about, well, how do we, how do we be authentic in this new way? And I, I don't know how to really relate those two things together, if that makes sense. Yes. I, I remember vividly when I was part of my high school Trinity Bible church youth group, and we had a student servant leadership team, student leadership team. And we were planning like a disciple now or a unity retreat in the fall. And the theme the youth pastor wanted to use was uh, authenticity uh, or genuineness, maybe what we settled on. But the idea was this, this importance and value of being authentic. Um, and there are good sides of authenticity and there's bad sides of authenticity. If the authenticity is rooted in the self and what I want and what I think is good, um, or if it's rooted in this mistaken concept of the primitive state of the church, that the there's this primitivism that the church in its earliest days was at its best. And ever since then, it's been bad. The, those are, those aren't okay. Um, but authentic as in, in terms of relationship, in terms of, of being honest before God about who we are and sincere and not duplicitous or uh, manipulative or deceptive. I think that's good. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, I was talking to a friend. I was, I was visiting with a friend who um, is on staff at a Presbyterian church in Dallas. And he said that he's asked this question several times to this young adults Sunday school that he leads. And he does this thought experiment and he says, um, what would it take for this Friday afternoon for you to walk into a mosque as a seeker? What would have had to have happened in your life for you to show up on Friday at a mosque in Richardson or whatever, Richardson, Texas 
as a seeker and people start giving their answers, trauma, betrayal, loss of relationship, death. They, they list these things. And it's interesting what he says. He said that only one person has ever given evidence-based claim. Uh, as in, I would have had to have been shown that the Bible's not true. Huh. And so I think there's two things that we can learn from that. One is Christian, please base your faith, not on these relationships. Look, if it is like trauma, that's going to cause us to walk away from Jesus. Trauma is going to happen. Betrayal is going to happen. Hurt is going to happen. Um, the reason we worship Jesus is because he's true and real. And the only thing that can ever should ever change that is if someone were to definitively beyond the shadow of a doubt, prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So there's one, like a, a kind of a diagnostic for Christians of like, Hey, what's our foundation here? And it's the rock mm -hmm. it's Jesus. And that's why we are Christians. The other side though, is the, is the honest, like, okay, if that's true for you, that's probably true for most people in that if, if what would take for you to leave Christianity's relationships, that's probably true for the people leaving. And it's probably also true for bringing people in to the faith. And so there's this double-sided thing. And I think that's part of where the authenticity is important is, are we being authentic with the people that we're engaging? Are we, are we building relationships that are desirous of and working towards a relationship with Jesus? Yeah. And th this is, this relates to why I kind of wanted to open up about generations and why I'm glad you did, because for all of the talk about distinguishing between generations, there are certain universal human truths that come to bear in each generation. And, and that has to do with how do we experience brokenness in the world? How do we experience the restless, restlessness of our own hearts? Um, and so while there can be all of this attention um, to sort of creating an authentic experience, I think we, for a specific generation, we tend to forget that uh, there's something, something as being authentically human that sort of transcends generational lines. Um, and so maybe that should be really the aim of the church, uh, like you're saying, as we think about evangelizing the next generation um, and, and really hitting on that, that term of authenticity. Um, you know, I think um, th there is, there's a lot you can say there about sort of what is the church, what do people get right about um, evangelizing Gen Z? But I think, I think, what's really interesting is the, is the controversy or the debate over uh, where people see sort of disagreement. And so um, let me just sort of kick it out like this way. What, what are some of the things that you think people get wrong when it comes to either evangelizing your generation or the generation behind you? Well, I think it's that we're not interested in being evangelized <laughs> uh, that there is, that it is no longer effective. There's debates upon methods, do tracts still work? Does standing on a street corner work? Is that effective? But I think that, and look, I'm, I'm guilty of this, a, a trepidation around evangelism because it's a little awkward at times. I will say whenever I do it, it's uh, like, like straight up evangel, like street evangelism type thing, like walking and talking to people. And I've done that with some group. It's never been awful. Uh, it's, it's never been like, I don't even want to say traumatic because what does that, you know, uh, in, in an evangelistic context, what does it mean for it to be traumatic? <laughs> Dallas, Texas, or DC. Uh, but I was looking at these study from Barna and it was looking at contrasting um, millennials approaches to evangelism and older generations. And it's incredibly interesting on just about every point millennials said that they had had an evangelistic experience more so than an older generation, whether that's tracks, uh, a one-on-one -on -one conversation, 
a person in the street, a concert venue, videos or movies. So, so all of them have been evangelized. It seems had at least are saying they've had more methods and more experience with evangelism than an older generation. But something else is that uh, they are 36% of millennial non-Christians are interested in learning more about Christianity and what it would mean for my life. Only 16% of older generations. Hmm. So if evangelism isn't working, if, if talking to people about Jesus and what Christianity means isn't working, then that number makes no sense. Like it's more than double previous generations who have had less evangelistic ex- ex- exposure. And, and the numbers are incredibly clear. And then on top of that, uh, 53% say that they're interested in a one-on-one conversation with someone who is a Christian. Man, that's so interesting. Cause that just goes against everything <laughs> you sort of hear, um, in sort of, uh, evangelical magazines or articles or what have you, when it comes to evangelizing. Um, I mean, I think it reflects certain aspects of, of younger generations. Um, like for example, I would probably tend to th- be pretty skeptical of, you know, somebody who said, Hey, I want to invite you to this church or, Hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Here's this, uh, website link, if that makes sense, or, Hey, just read this brochure. Um, I think the, the, the numbers that suggest that people want one-on-one conversations and, and relationships reflects that sort of desire for, um, relating to one another that's that's evident in younger generations um they don't want to be necessarily sold something but they do want to have those experience those relational experiences with people um they want to hear about how uh something changed your life um and what that meant for you and and how that might relate to them and i i think that's really important um when it comes to something that people get wrong about evangel- uh, young, evangelizing younger generations, which is that people want to be evangelized. Um, I, I think another thing, and this is another sort of cliche, is the, uh, the attention that we bring to being countercultural. Um, and when I hear that word being used, countercultural, I, I often have a follow-up question, which is, do you mean countercultural to the broader culture uh, in America or the world, or do you mean being countercultural to evangelical culture? Um, because it seems that, uh, some, uh, uh, churches or groups sort of brand themselves against evangelical culture, as opposed to being countercultural to the world at large. Does that make sense? Is that something that you've seen or noticed as well? Yeah, I hear you. And I, I will say this, I think when, um, in terms of what do people want, uh, conversations about they people will talk about most sincerely what they care about most deeply and and so if we want to talk about being countercultural in whatever way that is meant um and we're christians it's going to be very countercultural to talk most sincerely and most deeply about jesus and his and christianity i think more broadly or i mean that might get me in trouble at Presbytery trying to make a distinction there. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much uh, benefit there is in saying countercultural is the, is the way to go 
about things as much as what's most important is how sincerely are we talking about this faith that we hold most deeply? Uh, I think that's probably, uh, and how sincerely are we living this faith as well? I think those are, that's probably a better uh, thing to consider. Yeah. What you just said about living our faith more sincerely, I think gets at the root of what an authentic countercultural experience would be um, in sort of our, our age of um, privatized religion as uh, something that it's fine if you have it over there or you do it on Sundays, but don't sort of bring it out here. Um, a radical sort of culture countercultural experience with religion would just say, no, my faith informs every single thing that I do. Um, it informs my work It informs my, uh, the way I think about my finances It informs the way I think about my marriage. And what's funny is that doing that will look radically different from the culture, um, at large, but in sort of a kind of normy way, if that makes sense, like, uh, Lifelong monogamous marriage is like pretty normy in sort of the, the, the discourse, but actually practiced and lived out in culture is incredibly rare these days. Right. And so you sort of see this like weird tension between what it means to be countercultural and what that actually looks like played out in your life. Um, you know, when people draw up images of church, I think they tend to think like pews, stained glass windows, and, you know, an organ playing or something like that. And what's funny is that churches have sort of progressively moved more towards, uh, and I don't mean this in a disparaging sort of way, but moving more towards, you know, the seeker-friendly model of, of more uh, auditorium style seating or more contemporary worship style, blah, blah. But like some of that music and that style sort of models other uh, uh, corporate gatherings in culture, right? It, it looks sometimes like a TED talk or it sounds sort of like what you hear on the radio. Um, so it's actually not a very countercultural experience to the culture at large. Um, to actually be countercultural would have a very sort of traditional liturgical worship model. I think that there's this weird uh, like tension in this kind of stuff. And it's sort of why you've seen this rise of um, uh, people being sort of performatively tra like trad, if you will. Um, and I just think that that's a sort of an interesting dichotomy that I don't know if it gets as much attention as it otherwise deserves. Yeah. And part of the problem that is always run into when you have this pushback or rebellion to make a distinction or, um, a brand is that, uh, eventually, if what makes us distinct is that we have pews or we use a hymnal, or if what makes us distinct is that we use, um, a plexiglass pulpit or no pulpit or just a stool and, you know, a, uh, a, a deck, you know, um, then eventually you just have to swing the pendulum from one to the other and are always trying something new. And so the sourcing, I think this is where there's some other studies that I was, uh, saw came across and our foundation for how we do worship and for how we approach evangelism has to be rooted in scripture. Um, and whether, look, whether you're Presbyterian, Anglican, Baptist, non-denom, there is going to be a belief, whether you're aware of it or not, that your church is designed as worship service because they think that's most biblical, hopefully. 
hopefully the worship service is designed the way it is because they believe that's how God has called us to approach him. That's, that's how God wants for his people to um, approach him. But um, among other things, the scripture uh, uh, familiarity has gone down over six years. There's a study that from around 20, 21% of regular uh, readers of their Bible that was regular re- people reading the Bible regulars 21 21%. Now it's down to 17%. Those who are, have been skeptical of their Bibles has gone from 10 to 21% over that same amount of time. Um, broadly, readership is down. People just don't read as much, and the Bible is a book. So there's a barrier there that's put up. Um, even if it's on a on an app, which we all have the Bible app, uh, our retention is better when we read hard copies than when we read something on a device that's that the studies have shown. Uh, it's also seen to be old, confusing, and irrelevant. And here's what's really interesting. People are afraid that the Bible will make them feel badly about themselves or someone mm-hmm. they care about. There's a fear that the Bible will speak into and will guilt us. And look, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't like doing stuff that makes me feel bad about myself. I don't like going somewhere that shines a light on me or, or even if it's something I disagree with, I don't like listening to stuff that accuses me of something that I think is false. And so, um, but this is reflective of a broader culture at large. And it's why it's good to know the culture and know look, a culture that is so dominantly self-expressive, that is so into the authentic me, that is so into um, I decide my own morality and um, my subjective experience is what's most objectively true. Yeah, the Bible is going to be threatening to that. And I think knowing that and knowing what the, the person, what's, and we're all guilty of this, uh, of knowing how the Bible will impact and um, challenge that. So I say this, say, you know, as these numbers go down, Christians, it is so important for us to base our worship um, and our life on nothing else other than Jesus as he was revealed and fulfilled in the scriptures. That is, that, that has to be, be us. We're people of the book for crying out loud. Right. And I mean, it also makes me think that for all the talk about, you know, how do we, how do we do this? How do we evangelize the next generation? How do we bring the next generation to church? There also needs to be this explicit reminder that God is the one who is bringing his people to himself. Um, That we uh, go out and we speak the message and we um, call people uh, to repentance, um, but that we are not the ones that change hearts or transform minds um, that the Holy spirit is working in his, in uh, God's elect uh, to bring them to himself. Um, and so that actually provides a whole lot of comfort and confidence when we do evangelism. Um, we don't need to sort of obsess over sociological, sociological or demographic changes or trends um, because uh, we know that uh, as long as we are faithful to the word and faithful to God's ordinary means of grace, um, that God will sustain his church, that he will uh, continue to call people to himself. And so, you know, I just, I find that incredibly freeing as somebody who's in ministry uh, in an outreach ministry um, that, you know, I, I don't have to go into, you know, we do, we do ministry for folks who work in government. You know, we don't have to go into a Senator's office with like the perfect pitch you know, we don't have to, we don't have to, um, invite people to like, uh, an event 
that's like sort of perfectly tailored to capturing people's imaginations and uh, interests. Um, we can just be faithful to the word, faithful to what, what Christ has called us to do as his disciples um, and, and trust that, uh, you know, whether the event has a hundred people at it or five people at it, um, that he's at work there. Yeah. On that, a note with the, with research polls and um, <laughs> we, there's no such thing as like the average person, uh, you know, 50% of Americans believe this, this, and this, and it's like, um, there's no one out there that is a composite of how these demographic studies have shown what, what they are. Is there a helpful, they're, they're, a, they're a helpful diagnosis. They're a helpful thermometer to let us know, okay, here's kind of what's in the water. Here's how some people are feeling because, and here's, here's why I think this is true. Even from uh, places like Barna uh, or any others, when they offer their um, prescriptions to what ought to be done, they'll say, we need to be paying attention and listening. And it's like, well, if it was, <laughs> if it was just the case that this poll gave us everything, I wouldn't have to like, listen for distinctives. I would already know and just be able to slap slap my solution on something. But the truth is that it's just, there's just basic, like reasonable uh, common sense practices in evangelism. Like you listen for pain points and excitement points. You listen, pain and pleasure. You listen to like what gives someone the greatest amount of joy and what makes the person most sad. And you listen for those things and you, you ask questions and kind of wonder why and uh, speak truth. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Um, people don't like feeling like they've been, been uh, swindled, you know, and people feel most like they've been had when the secret is kept for them until later. Uh, just speak openly and clearly. And with that is like being, you know, that idea of being authentic and what we talk about most sincerely. Um, when everyone is talking about, I, I heard from something the other day that they said, DC next to LA is the most image conscious place in America. Totally believe it. Hundred percent true. And the reason for that is people are looking for jobs. People are looking for reelection. Um, reputation is so important here. What you are known for and how you appear are are very important. Those those are not inherently bad, but they can they can have deleterious effects on our souls. Um, but if you know people, these things that are most valuable, if people are talking about the most. When you start talking about Jesus, you talk about Him transforming your life. When there's a level of humility, when there's a level of dependence, that doesn't sound different. That sounds different. That doesn't that doesn't strike the same chords that these other conversations are having. Um, and so, I mean, we have to be immersed in the word. We have to know uh, uh, what Jesus is like. We need to be in prayer. Let these things change us so that um, Jesus can work through. So you mentioned the freedom that comes from evangelism. And I, I like to think that uh, freedom that comes from knowing that God is in control for evangelism. I like to think that when we believe that God is providentially arranging things according to his perfectly good will it turns life and evangelism in particular from uh an o2 count in the bottom of the ninth to uh home run derby it's not even like a it's not even like a 2-1 count or like a count. <laughs> um, i was gonna say 3-0 but you're definitely taking so <laughs> terrible example but it, it changes into a wholly different thing. It's, it's a home run derby and we get to live joyfully and have an, uh, have a motivation to go do these things that he's calling us to. That's such a great metaphor. I'm going to definitely steal that. So um, that's great. Yeah. I, I think that 
as we go forward from here and we think about evangelism, uh, particularly to younger generations, you know, reliance on the word, adherence to what um, scriptures have told us about uh, what God is doing uh, in the world and, and with his people um, is going to be really important. And I think also um, uh, just the, but with that, I mean, I think this is a pretty good place to land the plane. Um, and so thank you guys again. For, oh, go ahead. No, I, I did want to say I am, maybe it's just my circle where the Lord is doing this, but at least people I've been talking to place where I've been, there is an, a, a, a um, appreciation for an emphasis on a desire for evangelism that, that I haven't really seen too recent. And to tie this back to the beginning, when we talk about we're the first time in American history, more unchurched than churched um, when biblical literacy is going down, when understanding of what Christianity actually teaches, when people are afraid of reading the Bible, when these things are on the rise, um, there's a, a great, great need to explicitly talk about Jesus. There is an, uh, and, and a great opportunity also, um, you know, I'm not happy about the loss of cultural Christianity and, and what it, the, I think the good that it brings to communities. It's not perfect. It's not all good, but it does bring, there's a lot that is lost when it's gone, but there's an excitement thing. When you get to tell someone something that they've never heard before, when you get to lovingly correct them and be like, you know, to quote Ninga Montoya, you keep on using that word. I don't think it means what you think. <laughs> Someone says, yeah, Christianity is like this. It's like, I don't think you actually know what you're saying. And, and to make it even more personal, like Tim Keller says, do you see what you're missing? Because if they don't know what they're talking about, they certainly don't know what they're missing. And uh, there's a real, there's a real excitement there. There's a really, it's really fun. It's hard. It's not all fun, but um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you believe it? It's the, it's the, again, the woman at the well, come see about a man who told me all I ever did. That same level of excitement is something that we get to embody as believers. Oh, that's a great word. Um, well, I, I can't think of a better place to, to land the plane than, than there. Um, well, thank you. This has been, this has been wonderful. And, and thank you to our wonderful listeners for uh, listening to this week's episode of the Will and Rob show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, I'm at RD Hassler. I promise to be back soon on Twitter. I am wrapping up spring finals and I'm going to be cruising into the summer. Um, and uh, very excited for that. Uh, and, and you can follow Will at Stockdale Will. Uh, make sure to check out ministrytostate.org. Uh, and with that, we will see you guys again next week.